Welcome to Making It with Terry Woolman, the show that explores the secrets, successes, and strategies for making it in the music biz. And now, here's your host, Terry Woolman. Welcome to episode 139 of Making It with me, your host, Terry Wallman. I really appreciate you joining us each week, and I'd like to thank Blue Microphones for their technical support in continuing to bring our show to you during this world health pandemic. Please continue to stay mindful and safe as we all work together as a global community. You can find all of our episodes on entertalkmedia.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just go to terrywallman.com slash podcast. I hope you find my recent conversations with artists Boney James, Gino Vanelli, Tony Basil, Joe Vitale, Berkeley College of Music President Roger Brown, and my most recent guest, Auschwitz survivor Rose Schindler, inspiring, comforting, and entertaining. I created this show to focus on what it takes to create and maintain a lasting career in the ever-changing landscape of the music and entertainment business. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. I've got two guests instead of one, and actually three guests. The third is a film, and uh, which we will be talking about. And it's a movie that I just saw on Netflix. Uh, it's a documentary, and it's really exquisite, entertaining, moving, funny, joyful. It's a lot of things, and historical. And I just thought it would be so interesting to talk about the movie and talk about the two filmmakers so I reached out to them, and here we are today. So let me tell you a little bit about the movie and about my guest today. The movie is called Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. It's a 2020 American documentary film directed by Nicole Noonan and James Lebrecht. It takes place in the early 1970s and follows the story of a summer camp for teenagers with disabilities, which laid the backdrop for the disabilities rights movement, eventually leading to the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. Nicole Noonan is an Emmy-winning documentary producer and director, four-time Sundance Film Festival alumnus, WGA Award nominee, and five-time Emmy nominee. Her list of film credits is both extensive and impressive and include being shortlisted for the documentary Oscar. Her films have played at many prestigious venues, including the Sundance Film Festival, MoMA, and Lincoln Center. Nicole earned a master's degree in documentary film from Stanford University in 1994. She lives in Oakland with her husband, Tom, and two sons, Finn and Blaine, and a little doggy, too, that I just learned about in the intro. Jim Lebrecht has over 40 years of experience as a film and theater sound designer and mixer, author, disability rights activist, and filmmaker. As a student at UC San Diego, he helped found the Disabled Students Union. Starting his career at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, he worked as the resident sound designer before founding Berkeley Sound Artist and Audio Post-Production House. He's currently a board member at the Disability Rights, Education, and Defense Fund, which works for the rights of the disabled through education, legislation, and litigation. Lebrecht lives in Oakland, California, and is married to Crip Camp producer Sarah Boulder. Nicole and Jim are the directors and producers of Crip Camp. The film was executive produced by Barack Obama and Michelle Obama through their production company, Higher Ground. Nicole Noonan and Jim Lebrecht, welcome to Making It. 
Great to be here. Thank you. I wanted to talk about the first scene just to sort of set this up. And then we're going to be talking about the film, of course, and both of your backgrounds. I think it's important always for me, but for my listeners to really see where people, how they became who they became, you know, your early years growing up and what prompted you to become filmmakers and activists. If you'll indulge me, let me just describe the first scene to the people who haven't seen it. The movie's on Netflix, and I'm going to start and finish today's interview by saying, everybody, please go see it. The first scene opens to a black and white shot of a reel-to-reel tape recorder while a grinning teenager in a wheelchair holding a microphone asks the question, do you like to see the handicapped people depicted as people? The shot resolves to Jim Lebrecht at his job in the theater, followed by home movies, of an extremely happy young boy with spined bifida moving around with that same grin on his face. You, you had me at the opening of, of the movie with, <laughs> with all of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let me give you the floor. Why don't you talk about that opening and how you actually came up with it? And let's start talking about the movie. I want to talk about the movie a little bit first, and then we'll go back to personal early years. I, uh, let, let me start a little bit, but I... Um... Nicole and I had this great fortune of coming, being able to find this five and a half hours of footage from Camp Jeanette in 1971. And there's a good story there. But that moment when we started reviewing all of the video and seeing John Maslin and Michael Tannenbaum and John asking that question was like, there you go. There, that's what the film hopefully is, you know, just about. And the fact that he asked that question 50 years ago. Right. Just mind-blowing. Isn't it? It probably doesn't feel like 50 years, does it? I mean, it's a blink of an eye and a lifetime simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it, it, it does give me a great deal to think about realizing how long ago it was. And it, it's been tough but um in some respects but um you know we're all still friends so many of us i just got a text this morning from lionel who's one of the, the he's the counselor from alabama mm-hmm. saying you know 50 years ago you know the camp um kind of had a you know a rebirth because uh the summer uh, before we didn't have any camp because the dining room had burned down and it's like he wants to have a virtual reunion so, oh, that's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great to hear you talk about the opening and and you know it sucking you in the way that it did. Um, it's true that Jim and I, the minute we saw that clip of John and Mike asking themselves that question, I mean that was the way we started our fundraising trailer that we used to try to you know initially raise money for the film before Higher Ground and Netflix came on board. It was really a independent labor of love. Um, funded by foundations and individuals, but, um, and that framing of asking that question always leapt out at us as being what the whole film was about. But it took, you know, a year and a half of painstaking editing to come up with, you know, and be sure that that opening was the right thing to do. And I think one of the things that the opening does, which is very weird, actually, is that it starts out in the kind of core past that we're going to be delving into the, this experience of this hippie summer camp that Jim and his friends went to in 1971. But then 
it goes, like you said, it, then it moves to Jim as a successful sound designer in the, um, around 1980 um, at the Berkeley Repertory Theater in this weird kind of um, like PSA for, you know, that you should hire disabled people with this sort of cheesy voiceover. And then, uh, and, and so, and then it moves back into the past with Jim as a kid and kind of starts his childhood. And so um, when we first did that, it seemed very weird to us. Like, how are we jumping all over the place in time? Um, and, and yet that kind of language for the film um, became really important. It kind of freed us from some, um, you know, kind of formulaic ways of telling the story so that we could do that. We could jump into people's backstories. We could come back, but we're kind of establishing from the beginning that the present tense of the film is that camp and that immersion and that like profound experience of freedom and liberation that, uh, that, that Jim and his friends experienced that then, you know, sparked everything else. So, um, it's just, it, for, for us, it was like a really, a commitment to, um, to work collaboratively and, and really take our time to try to figure out how to take all these disparate little tiny pieces of archival footage from across history and create a language out of them, you know, um, that we could tell the story in. Well, it, it works. And, and I'm always so fascinated as a fellow artist of the creative process and the collaborative process and how you choose to begin your story I found it really just interesting, you know, and you made a lot of very interesting production choices, you know, sonically, and you talk about it in, in other interviews that I've read with some of the people in the film who have difficulty speaking as, as part of their, their disability and whether you use subtitles or not, and just, and even the timing of it, you know, allowing the discomfort. And it's a really interesting time in our society right now because there are a lot of things going on that are making people uncomfortable. Certainly uh, the pandemic, the global pandemic, certainly the racial unrest in our country, around the world, but predominantly right now. And people are struggling. Uh, they're really uncomfortable. And I think discomfort is a good way to shake the tree, as well as humor, which you certainly, you know, you, you don't shy away from humor in the movie. You don't shy away. And not even you don't shy away there's an underlying foundation of joy in the movie. That's my takeaway. You know, the first time I met Jim, you know, that was, that was just like so clear that that was like the core of, of Jim is this amazing sense of humor. And also this year, Jim is like a joy seeking missile, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, so, so, uh, so that was one of the reasons I was really excited to work with you on this project, Jim, is just because I knew it was going to be a huge amount of fun and that, and that it was going to be exploring like that, that kind of, that kind of joy. And it's a lot of it is, you know, that, that human sense of humor and joy that you were always saying was, you know, specifically very fun and cool and unique to the disability community. I think when you talk about unrest or you talk about discomfort, I think it comes, so much of that comes from fear and it's fear of the unknown. And that I think there's a lesson to be, I don't want to sound like I'm patting ourselves on the back. I think it's a lesson to be learned in our film that because we are really digging in really deeply into people's lives, hearing their voices very clearly that 
the end result is, is that you're not put off by people that maybe you were put off by before the film began. Mm-hmm. And that I think that a lot of, I think that a lot of the problems that we have in society come from a similar place of fear and lack of familiarity. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that we have to be open to the possibility that our stereotypes are uh, wrong or that we have fear, but that that fear is destructive to ourselves mm-hmm. and to others. Mm-hmm. There's two quotes of yours, Jim, and Nicole, we'll go back and forth between things that I've read from both of you. But I want you to share the story of how the movie started, because it is a great story and like how, where the idea came from in your conversation. But let me preset this with two of your quotes. And these are from the, the film. I loved music. I loved life. I wanted to be part of the world, but I didn't see anyone like me in it. And then I hear from some people about this summer camp. The wild thing is that this camp changed the world and nobody knows the story. Those were two things that jumped out that kind of really define what this story is is about. And, you know, here's something else that, that I read. Camp Jened began as a traditional kind of summer camp in the 50s that evolved in the 60s and 70s as a place where teenagers could be teenagers without all of the stereotypes and labels. Tell us about the conversation between the two of you that was the beginning of this movie starting. Um, well, I've, I, Nicole and I have known each other for many, many years. I've been her sound mixer, sound designer for three of her uh, feature-length documentaries. And um, over the course of that time, I also became a little bit more and more um, eager and kind of um, maybe there's a certain amount of anger and energy towards seeing the disability experience portrayed in a in a in a manner that I felt was much more realistic uh, than I had seen before. So many and so. Nicole and I were having lunch one day after she was wrapping up her last documentary, which was uh, The Revolutionary Optimist. And we were hanging out and I was like, Nicole, there's all these stories I want to have told here. And I love you as a filmmaker. And I don't, you know, here's some ideas. And really kind of at the end of the conversation, I kind of offhandedly said, but you know, I am uh, summer camp. And, uh, you know, Nicole, why don't you tell the rest of the story? Well, I was very excited about the idea of working with Jim and exploring disability because I had learned so much through Jim. I mean, I guess what I had learned is that I had a lot to learn and I was um, curious and, and intrigued um, and interested to explore it. Um, I have a personal background with disability to a certain extent, but the kind of disability culture and disability, um, uh, you know, humor and all of these things that I was learning about from Jim were completely new to me and exciting. Um, But when he said that about his summer camp, I was sort of intrigued, but I was also sort of like, oh, God, because, you know, a lot of people think they have this profound 
transformational summer camp experience, which they did, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's summer camp experience needs to be, you know, a feature length documentary film. And then Jim starts describing this camp and he's a great storyteller and the way he kind of painted this image in my mind of this hippie Valhalla of kids, you know, coming into their own and, and this idea of like a coming of age story that also happened to be potentially linked to you know, one of the greatest civil rights stories in American history, but one that most people don't know about was extremely exciting to me. And at that point, we didn't think we had any footage through which to bring people inside that world. And so we were having these actually really fun and great creative conversations about how would we do that? You know, would we, could we cast all these young teenagers with disabilities and kind of recreate the camp scenes and kind of go in and out between that uh, or back and forth between um, those recreations and, and people's memories and interviews and, and current day experiences. Um, and then, you know, I guess two things happened kind of simultaneously as we started working on the project together and decided to co-direct it, um, which was the other thing that I think was really exciting to both of us was the idea that finally here, a major story out of disability history would be told from the point of view and by a director with a disability um, who had that lived experience. Um, one thing is that we found this footage. It was like finding, you know, a needle in a haystack or um, some kind of buried treasure. Um, Jim had this vague memory that this Radical Video Coalition had visited the camp and we knew that they had produced a little short tape about the crabs epidemic. But then he true also- story, right. Yeah, it's a true story as you see in the film. But, but Jim also had this memory that they had handed him the camera and then strapped this old video porta pack on the back of his wheelchair and that he had filmed a tour of the camp. And that, that was like the holy grail, right? Like, oh my God, you yourself were shooting footage of your own camp in 71. And, you know, through lots of online research, we, we tracked down one of the guys from the surviving members of this amazing group called the People's Video Theater. And he lived in San Francisco, just across the bay from us. And he was midway through transferring the entire five and a half hours of footage he had shot at the camp that summer with his collective. And uh, it was, it had survived because most of that early video is. It burned, you know, didn't it? Um, well, some other footage, uh, some of the, it was actually Evan White, the reporter who was in the sit-in later, whose footage burned. But a lot of this early video is just corrodes when you try to transfer it. But somehow this stuff had survived 17 moves in different garages and basements and was intact. So, so we did, like Jim said, we just get, we get this hard drive and all of a sudden, you know, you can hear, you can hear Jim's voice as he's filming the tour of the camp and, and uh, you know, you can hear him like flirting with girls and uh, you, we even like stopped at the video footage at one moment and saw, and Jim said, wait a minute, what's that on my neck? And it was like a hickey that is for <laughs> girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, it was, we, we had no idea when we started the project that we would be able to literally make you feel like you were there along with Jim and his friends. And, and it was such a joy to be able to create that world through editing that footage together. Jim, what was it like um, when you got to see the footage again? Was it surreal? Uh, it was surreal. It was bittersweet. It was... Um, I mean, I felt like I was like looking through this like telescope back in time and, you know, seeing all these people I had not 
seen uh, since that day or um, and it's boy I gotta tell you it's so it, I, I get asked this question a lot it's hard to I don't feel like my words are 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 good enough to explain what that science was like other than um, made me very wistful and uh, it made me miss my youth and those people Talking about being wistful and kind of um, looking back at your childhood, from the footage of you being a little kid at the beginning of the film, just flinging yourself around the house with this big, stupid grin on your face, you seem like you were pretty <laughs> precocious and fearless and and that you were just that a lot of your childhood was pretty great. You know, like you had a good family and, and you were encouraged and even, I mean, your dad had told you that you're going to need to be more outgoing than most people because people might not come up to you. You need to go to them. But all that stuff aside, you seem like a pretty happy kid. You know, I mean, I think to to an extent you're absolutely right. It's not that, you know, um, it's, it's not that it wasn't a tough time growing up. I was different. Um, but I had a lot of, uh, things that, you know, made my life today very possible, like entering public school in the middle of first grade. Um, and yeah, you see the happy little boy, you know, waving and, and all of that. But I think I had a relatively, you know, it wasn't all sugar and spice and everything nice. And uh, I mean, not to sugarcoat it, but because of, of course there is the other side, yeah. Let me just ask you straight up because I don't get this opportunity. Sure. I would imagine it must have been really hard being that different. How did you build your coping skills or how did you maneuver through that when you are three and four and six and, and then older in adolescence? How'd you get through that? I mean, I think that uh, I think that part of navigating that is that, you know, fortunately I did have some friends in school. Um, and look, I, I mean, I remember playing on the playground and having a good time, um, there, uh, but I did feel a bit, you know, ostracized. Well, you know, I, this is not a, I don't get this. This is a good question, Terry, because in some respects, okay, I wasn't friends with the, you know, the kids in the tests team in high school, but then who the hell was? But I did find my home in theater. So like a lot of us, you know, Nicole found a home in theater, you know, too. And, uh, you know, okay, there you go, right? So I think that um, my parents um, somehow enabled me to, they did not overprotect me. You know, it wasn't like they let me, you know, run wild or anything, but I got a chance to, you know, get out of the house and smoke pot with my friends across the street in the woods and as a teenager and I got to do other things but um so I I think it was kind of typical in some respects but totally different certainly you know just trying to negotiate the world before curb cuts before handicap parking before any civil rights uh, laws were uh, enabled for people with disabilities made life difficult. I mean, we talk about my trying to go down to Manhattan and, um, you know, I have to challenge. 
um, just to kind of find a place where there was an elevator or ramp. And indeed, there was that day where I couldn't find it. So I don't know. You know, I mean, I, it's it was very interesting to me because, you know, we, a part of our process of working together was that Jim and I would record audio that we would then use as, as his narration. Um, but we would do it in kind of an intimate kind of interview style process. And, and, and we talked a lot about that, about like what was hard about your childhood. And I, one thing I really appreciated about working with Jim and the way that you wanted to approach telling the story is that I think you were really insistent that we not serve up for people kind of what they what they would expect. I mean, everybody's life is full of difficulty, tragedy. All kids feel ostracized, all kids feel happy, all of that. And I think a very kind of um, typical way that we could have focused the beginning of the documentary. And, and I think that, you know, that was probably my just sort of like first inclination was to was to be like, tell us about some really traumatic time where kids were teasing you or this or that. But because if you if we focus on that, which is kind of what people expect, then we're not getting like, oh my God, I heard I'm, you know, could smoked up with the counselors and meeting, meeting like the the more like full, total, accurate, fun, you know, um, picture of Jim right away. And then he gets defined a little bit in terms of the telling of the story by by this thing, which was just like one aspect of who he was or, or what his experience was. And so I just, um, I, I, I felt like, you know, uh, I've said it before that like, I, but it's really true that like Jim's, Jim's experience, Jim was insistent on owning his own telling of the, um, of, of the story and, and, and really like kept, always kept pulling us back to that. Um, and, uh, and it was, and I think the end result is is something really different, you know, than what I we've seen. Too. Yeah, I, I think you accomplished that because my first reaction was not a knee jerk reaction that of a preset bias that I have that I'm not even that aware of, of seeing somebody that's in a chair that can't walk. What I saw was somebody who was really, really funny and playful and and I knew that there's more to the story. I know it's not just some happy go everybody has trauma. Everybody has a story. But the first thing that I saw about you was not whether you could walk or not. What I saw was a really interesting guy surrounded by a group of very interesting friends who very quickly I found out were instrumental in changing the world and not just the perception, but the laws. So your decision, your choices in how you started the film off really allowed me to not view you, Jim, and the other people that I was seeing on camera as people with disabilities first. I saw you as people first. You got me over my bias that I wasn't even aware that I had um, very quickly so that I was able to get into your story. So I think you achieved that. Let's talk about the challenges that are so obvious to you that people still, I think, are oblivious to that don't have people with disabilities in their family or in their immediate perimeter with not being able to find a curb to get up or being able to get to a second floor of a building because there's no elevator access or various things like that. You must be so proud to have been part of this movement that changed the laws in our country. I, I would just say, I think for me and 
um, a lot of other people, um, whether you're born with a disability or acquire a disability, mm-hmm. is that my personal experience was that life seemed very unfair. That why couldn't I not get into this building? Or why could I not do what people who were walking around were able to do? And I didn't, you know, and so I, I just want to say that, you know, I am part of that community that made this change that has been felt throughout the world that every one of us um, um, benefits from. But I am really honored to be, to really, uh, you know, say that Judy Human is a friend of mine and that I fortunately moved to the Bay Area, which has such a strong culture of, um, a, of a disability community. And that, you know, uh, during the sit-in, the 26-day sit-in, I mean, I was in San Diego in college, and it was these folks that put their lives on the line, and they put their lives on their line because our lives had always been threatened by this inability to have civil rights, this uh, inability for society to see us as anything but sick. And um, it, so this was you know, extremely important. And as you look at the other things that have happened, you see the Capitol crawl near our end of our film that really shed light on the necessity, you know, shed light on the ADA and, you know, that it needed to be passed. Some of those problems still exist. I can't, I can't use my wheelchair on an airplane, which means I can't use the bathroom on an airplane. People don't realize that. Uh, unemployment in the disabled community is very high, not because we can't work, we want to work, but that um, employers are not seeing this as some, for a lot of us is uh, untapped resource, but as a liability. So if you look at that, and then we look at the whole fight around healthcare. I mean, one of the biggest moments in my life was the passing of the Affordable Care Act, because I wasn't guaranteed health insurance. I got a pre-existing condition. And if I was able to get health insurance, it was very expensive and very, very limited. Not to mention that you're self-employed. Oh, yeah. And an artist. And look, 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 and, you know, to this day, uh, I, I went from a small group plan at the company that I founded to an individual plan. I cannot get coverage that will pay for wheelchair repairs. I cannot get coverage that will pay uh, if my BiPAP breaks. If my BiPAP breaks, it's $5,000. I'm stunned. What can I do? What can we do? Of course, life is unfair, but that's where you draw the line. How we're born is how we're born, but what we do with those situations, how we help each other and take care of each other, that's unacceptable to me. Look, one of the most important things, services or um, uh, or benefits that some people with disabilities can get is in-home health care services, which pays for people to come in, get somebody up in the morning, get dressed, you know, go to the bathroom, yada, yada, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the one thing that is enabling people to work. But more importantly, it's keeping them out of nursing homes and institutions. And when we come into uh, economic 
downturns like we are experiencing right now with COVID, those are the kind of services, fund, that kind of funding gets cut. And, and, you know, a nursing home isn't like going to some nice little place with plants to read all day. It's a prison. Mm-hmm. And it's a prison in which you're going to die sooner than is if you, unless you were at home. And, and so, you know, what can you do? Well, if you hear politicians talking about these tough cuts we have to make, why is it always on the backs of people with disabilities? Are we that disposable? Are we that unimportant that we shouldn't be in society, but that should, but we should be put in danger of dying early? I mean, you know, I, I don't, I hope you don't think I'm being melodramatic. No, not at all. I, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely being completely sincere about this. And so I'm seeing this again, and it's like, what the hell are we going to do now? Because you know, there are governments all over the country are talking about how they're going to have to make cuts to programs. Insurance companies already, their business model is that they don't give a shit about people. They're profit driven. So it's it's not exclusive to people with disabilities. I find it more offensive that there's some basic needs in your community that are not being met. So I don't feel that it's being melodramatic at all. Well, also, uh, let me say one more point that, uh, that with COVID coming in, COVID, they talked about healthcare rationing and that people were in danger of showing up in a hospital and being just turned away simply because they were sitting in a wheelchair. Or this rationing, which said, you know, um, and the companies were saying that we might need to confiscate your backup ventilator that you have at home. Mm. So I could go on, but Nicole, I'm sorry, I think I was about to cut, I cut oh, you No, off. that's great. I mean, you were just making a kind of, kind of um, enacting the point I was going to make, which is that you asked what people can do. And I think that one of the best things people can do is seek out disability activists and disability-led organizations and listen to people with disabilities and let them lead on on where where is the best place to donate money? What should you call? You know, like right now you can call representatives and make sure that there's oversight in in nursing homes and institutions, make sure that they're better regulated um, because people are really, really vulnerable right now because of the pandemic. Um, but I think that uh, there are so many exciting voices and social media has really elevated a lot of them. And so we, we have this amazing opportunity to just like literally log on to Twitter and follow these incredible folks who are who are like the current day Judy humans, you know, and a few that just leap to my mind are um, Alice Wong, um, who has something called the uh, Disability Visibility Project, which is extraordinary. Um, and Imani Barbarin, who's an in- incredible uh, activist and, and writer. Um, Rebecca Coakley, who works with the Center for American Progress. So, I mean, uh, that has just been really eye-opening for me and also led me to like direct actions and, and, um, and things that I can be involved in and support. I'll get all of the links, direct links, and we can put them up on the InterTalk Media website as well. So people... I'm going to make it easy for you. <laughs> All you need to do is click and and learn and, and get involved. You know, we're talking about COVID. Not only has this impacted both of you, it's impacted the release of your movie. You were all set to have all this amazing stuff happen, 
you're collaborating with President Obama and Michelle Obama in your movie. And Nicole, I know that you had mentioned in a previous interview that it was kind of surreal when you really just think about it. I understand why. It's certainly well-deserved. You know, in a way, there's a little bit of a blessing that, you know, the release of your movie to the public, to theaters and things like that, it, it certainly creates limitations. However, you certainly have a captive audience right now, you know, which is part of the reason I wanted to get you on the show. Most people have Netflix. There, there's no lack of material to be looking at. There's no lack of books to be reading. There's no lack of podcasts and various things. There's, this is a time and an opportunity for people to become more informed and more enlightened and more uh, motivated to lift each other and to lift themselves. Yeah, we we were all set to go to Europe with the film when everything got locked down. But fortunately, we had our extraordinary opening uh, at, at Sundance, and um, which is something I'll never forget because we had a wonderful funder who helped pay for so many of the people that are in the film to come to Park City and be on that stage. And it felt like this real kind of seminal moment around disability um, being seen by an opening night where we played. Uh, I mean, it was over 2,000 people that saw the film. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, we were in two different theaters. And so it, uh, in some respects, um, this has been a blessing in that indeed, gee, you know, we're, you know, there's new people have been kind of stuck at home. Also, um, our ability to do Q and A's uh, on films with film organizations and all sorts of other people. Um, it's a little bit easier to travel to your office, your home office from the dining room, an airplane or go someplace, and it, it's a very intimate experience. It's remarkably intimate in such an odd way because we're so disconnected but never been more connected. Yeah, and I, I really resonate with what you said, Terry, about this being a moment for reflection and learning, and it's kind of like a moment for dreaming the future that we want to live in, you know, um, as well as people are taking extraordinary action right now. Um, to, to make that hap happen, including like a lot of really incredible activists with disabilities who are out, on, you know, even on the front lines of the, of the marches that are going on right now. Um, and I think you see that intersectionality in our film. You see the Black Panthers joining in uh, to try to fight for the 504 and all the, the LGBT movement at the, of the time and all, all of the, um, the sort of recognition of kind of common cause. And, um, and so I think that has been resonating really powerfully in the current moment that we're in. Um, and I think people are able to sort of see disability as a social justice issue. That's in a, in a way that, um, that intersects all of these other movements um, in a way that hasn't happened before. And the film has given people kind of like a critical um, framing for that at a time when it's really needed. And so that even though, you know, we're very sad not to be in theaters and we're and, and actually engaging with people and all of those things that were on our plate, it's like, we, I think we're so deeply grateful that our film 
can can be a helpful part of the really critical conversation that's happening right now. You know, we never obviously could have ever predicted it, but it felt like it kind of landed at a, a historically maybe. I mean, of course, like I wish that somebody had told this story and made this history more available to people. You know, two years after it happened, when it should have should have come out the 504 the history of the disability rights movement should be in every history book in the country but this particular telling of the story landing right now almost um in some weird way almost feels to us like it was meant to be yeah, yeah. to me too yeah that's why i reached out to you i just wanted to share my opportunity for you to have a voice for people to know about this right now while there's a captive audience. I read something from the Obama's production company and I'll just read it to you. And it's not news to you because you've read all of this. Crip Camp has an excellent potential of recalibrating the disability narrative in the direction that is long overdue and needed. Along with other marginalized identities, disability has often been erased or ignored in writings and stories of American history. So perhaps this film will be the beginning of the restoration of these narratives and open doors for healing and redemption. Both of these statements seem really quite timely in the light of long overdue racial inequality in our country. And as lifelong activists, do you have hope or insight as to where we might be headed as a country right now, speaking to everything that's going on, of course, including disabilities? We all, I think that um, to survive to an extent, you have to be an optimist at times or you look for the the bright light in the you know in the dark of night and i hope there's a shift and i hope that at the core of that shift is regard for other people and there is a universal message in crip camp you know and it, and it, there's a couple of messages you know one of the messages is how can you strive for a better life if you never see one? You got to be able to show people that there's a better, you know, their lives. And so many of us are pushed down or told you'll never make it. And, you know, I think the other message is that um, this is not simply about disability in our film, but it is about um, how we treat each other and how we regard and what are what are our metrics for that or what are and the most important lesson I've learned on being involved with this film is I need to educate myself more and more. I need to understand the world around me. I have to understand the people around me. And it's up to all of us to do our, it's not like eating your vegetables. It's like your ignorance is dangerous. And it is up to, and, you know, and it's up to people like me and other white people to do our work and do our education. I agree with you. And I'm in a biracial marriage, so I'm acutely aware of that as well. And, and I agree. As a white person, we have a deeper responsibility right now to step up, to get educated, to be curious, and not just to ask questions to all our black friends, but take it upon ourselves to read and watch and research and use the tools available. Google racism. Google important movies and films about the topics. Get ourselves up to speed. Um, 
you know, and, and I don't, sometimes I feel like human nature is more selfish and, and not selfless, not, not as inclusive as what you're talking about. And the very fact that Jim, even you and activists are saying, I need to get more involved. I need to get more educated. I need to step up as well. So even for somebody who's, you know, you've both been lifelong activists and we still need to do it. I have as well in different ways, in my own ways, but it's a really interesting time. Like, you know, we're seeing so many of the demonstrations right now in the wake of the murder of George Floyd that are actually being uh, initiated by young people. You know, we had a demonstration in Oakland organized by a 17-year-old that wound up being a dance party at the end. You know, and and that's not frivolous. That's community. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is that is really um, – and the same thing is happening in the disabled community. You know, we all need to pass the mic or make sure that the mic is available to this fresh, younger generation. And one of the things that we've been uh, focused on our impact campaign is on the disability justice movement. And that, you know, a couple of years ago, I didn't know what this was. Well, tell me what it is, because I'm not sure if I know either. Well, I mean, I think initially we think of disability rights and such, but disability justice is really um, more of a focus of on um, people of color, um, people from the LGBTQ uh, community, um, in, in, and really from their standpoint about really what does disability rights and therefore justice really, really mean. I mean, I, I don't know if I've got the best uh, definition for it, and it's probably what I really need to <laughs> cram on now because we've been in, immersed in it for a long time. We chose people to run, to run our, our impact campaign for the film to come out of that community. And we've got and people really, I encourage people to go to the uh, www.cripcamp.com because one of the links there is to our summer long series of workshops um, that we're calling the virtual Crip Camp 2020. And your voices there are the, of the people that are talking and giving workshops are the voices that have traditionally not been heard or have not had a broad audience. I think the idea is that if you, um, if you're looking for wisdom in terms of how, what is the problem and how do we solve it? If you go to the people who are the most marginalized um, and then within the disability community, those are people who are multiply marginalized. So people who are, you know, disabled, queer people of color, um, those people are going to have, a lot of wisdom to to offer and are the people whose voices need to be heard and who need to be leading. And, um, and that was the strong belief of um, Stacy Park Milburn, who was uh, uh, one of the co-designers and, and leaders of our impact campaign who passed away a couple of weeks ago, but it's really worth reading and getting to know kind of her teachings. And one of the things that she really believed is that um, people needed to think uh, much, much less in American culture about independence and much more about interdependence and, and really understand that we, we are all connected to each other. Um, and it's like that quote of, you know, it, 
if, if you do you believe that your liberation is is bound up in mine and and that I think that's what we see happening in the story of Crip Camp. We see people recognizing that even though their their disability is different or their culture is different or their background is different that that they are suffering the same oppression and they're coming together and struggling for for justice which will mutually benefit not just people with disabilities but everyone you know and that was something we tried to build into the storytelling that that it's a revelation for for the non-disabled viewer when they see the curb cuts or the result of it and they realize that Every time they drag their own suitcase up a curb cut, you know, they're being benefited by that. Um, every time you push a stroller, but it was the people who were who 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 were suffering the most and needed that the most that pushed through and made it happen. Um, and and it's a shame that it always has to take such a huge struggle and that we can't just listen to each other. And so one of the things that I found really moving about this time that we're in is it feels like somehow white people are starting that's starting to dawn on white people in a in a more profound way i feel like people are much more open to um in the last week to admitting um admitting what they don't know and admitting what they need to learn so um it, it and admitting what they, they turned away from and what they turned away from mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i would agree with that yeah I want to switch gears for a second because I could go all day with you on this and uh, hope to continue the conversation at other points. It's, a, it's kind of a technical question, but sort of a conceptual question about the movie in the, the very beginning of the movie. There's two logos that happen that really caught my attention as well, be, even before the opening scenes. And one of them was a graphic of a set of stairs descending to reveal the words higher ground which was for the Obama's production company, followed by Rustic Spoke Productions, a graphic of autumn leaves blowing to reveal a wheelchair accompanied by the sound of wind and the clang of a bell. And it caught my attention because I'm a musician and I know that you both are very conscious of sound. Tell me about your logo, yours, the one that you guys made for your production company. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things sometimes you hear about you know, the the song that was recorded in the last three minutes of the recording session that becomes a hit. And it was, you know, we were talking and, and I just had this uh, image of a wheelchair wheel at the camp many years later, resting underneath a pile of leaves and the leaves. So we kind of took it from there. It's it's more of a rusty hinge than a bell going on. Is that what it is? Yeah, I couldn't quite tell. And it was a vocal, yeah, yeah. What's that, Nicole? Go ahead, Jim. Sorry. No, no. I, I um, anyway. So it was. I don't know. And then Nicole worked, had worked with this incredible animator who uh, did her uh, did the logo, and it's just. Yeah, it was sort of like a Jim had. We we were joking about that logo, you know. And then we got to the very, but Jim had everything. You had the sound, the image, the whole thing in your head from the very beginning of like starting the company. And you explained to me why we should call the company we formed to make the film Rusted Spoke Productions. Um, why is it called Rustic Spoke? Well, you know, uh, certainly for me, uh, all my wheelchairs up until the time that I, I got into a power chair all had spokes like a bicycle wheel. And so there's just some kind of, lineage there or or just and that, that it's an old you know just 
I don't know, unearthing old stories around disability. I, I don't know. But one thing that was cool is that Jim had already said he had that image in his mind. And then a few months before we finished making the film, we get an email from a, a woman who had been a counselor at Camp Jeanette. And she said, I'm here, you're making this film and I'm, I'm really excited. And I want to let you know that like, periodically I drive back up to the old campsite and the camp's not there anymore. And I walk around and, you know, I feel I can feel the spirit of the campers who were there and the counselors who were there. And she said, you know, at one point I found a rusty wheelchair wheel in a pile of leaves. Then <laughs> so it seemed ordained. So, yeah. So it was just at the very last minute we thought, wait a minute, you know, Higher Ground is going to have a logo. We should have a logo too. And and then I remembered this great animator and thought maybe maybe we could make Jim's um, vision come true. So it was fun to do that. And really, we had so much fun uh, with the sound design and and mixing at the end of the project. It was it was just a joy. The sound design is great. I mean, I yeah, I know. Go ahead, Jim. No, Terry. There's a vocal wind in that that rustle of leaves. Oh, is that you? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was me. I mean, I, I messed around with it, but yeah. But that for me, um, in certain films I've worked on as a sound designer, putting a vocal wind inside things has this very kind of organic, kind of otherworldly feel to it. That explains part of the reason why it got to me so much. It, it was that. And I, and I do that in my music also. I'll use breath sometimes or just something that's... I've, I've hit my mouth for percussion, things that, yeah. that are human. So you, you pulled me in on that. I guess that's what I connected with was the sound of your breath. I mean, even the, in the talking with Barry McCreary about the music mm-hmm. and the orchestration. He's such a great composer and a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, you know, talking about acoustic instruments, talking about things that we might've heard at the camp, um, just really trying to, or, you know, they had an organic place. You wouldn't want this to all be blazing electric guitars and synthesizers. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so, you know, you think about, um, you have to think about, you know, everybody's so visually oriented, like, here's what the stuffed animal's gonna look like, right? But you can't do that with, here's what the sound's gonna sound like. So, um, well, I could talk about this for hours, and yeah. you and I could, and Nicole. You know, Nicole is just freaking a great class. I mean, I've mixing with her has always been a blast because not any not everybody I've worked with gets it. And Nicole gets the subtlety; she understands these things, and then leads me. Any good mixer or any collaborator feeds off of the per- person they're working with, and we've had that kind of beautiful relationship over the years. And this film is. Um, it speaks to that. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that I don't expect to have as satisfying as an experience for the rest of my life because I have this. <laughs> it was really amazing. Everyone that worked on the film, I think, felt that way. We all felt like it was a once in a lifetime kind of coming together, you know, to tell a really, really important story. That's great. And I normally ask a guest about the creative process and collaboration, and you just really described it beautifully. And the experience, when it's done right, there is something that's magical about it that, like you said, might never be created quite in that way again. But what a gift that you have each other and that you respect and challenge each other. 
it's based in trust and and being able to table things at times that you don't agree on, but knowing that you're heard and that you're respected. And if you have those things in a relate a collaborative relationship, you can get to the best piece of the pie. That was a horrible analogy. <laughs> that's because you no, that's <laughs> because I, you didn't have breakfast yet. No, I totally get the pie analogy. <laughs> I didn't either. Uh, Nicole, I wanted to um, to ask you a little bit more about Judy because she's really a, a pivotal part of the story and a dear friend of you both. Yeah, I just um, I was thinking about what I said earlier about these um, current day activists um, who are modern day Judy humans, and I realized. I should also point out that Judy Human is um, is also a current day activist. She is she is doing incredible work. Um, she actually has a, um, a YouTube, I think, YouTube series called The Human Perspective that you can watch, where she interviews um, folks in the disability community who are doing great work, and um, and she's amazing to follow on Twitter. Um, you know, working with Judy on this film has been one of the great. Um, profound joys of it um, in that I think that both Jim and I have just learned a huge amount from watching her um, work uh, today, um, watching her um, galvanizing people, watching her um, never ever uh, stay silent. I mean, to the extent that when there was this massive audience at the opening night of the Sundance Film Festival and people said, why, why haven't I heard this story before? Why didn't I know this history? Judy said, well, this is an audience of progressive um, artists and, and people who really should know better and should know this history. So why don't you ask yourself that question? Why don't you know this history? I mean, she is, she is extraordinary and I really recommend people continue to engage with her too if they want to know more about this issue and, and, and what's going on. She also has a memoir that came out just a month or two ago yes. called, uh, what is it, Being Human? Is that the title? I'm like, oh, right. And it's a great memoir that kind of almost reads like a companion piece of time to the to the film, but it's a great read. Can you guys include Judy's link as well? Sure. I'm enjoying so much getting to know both of you and having this conversation. And I literally could go much longer on this. And and by the way, we can always circle back again if you ever want to come back on the show if there's more to say reach out and we'll make it happen. Before I get to my closing questions, I just wanted to ask each of you, what is your hope or what is the takeaway that you would hope that each of the people who view your movie walk away with? I'd love to hear what you have to say first, Nicole, but I'm happy to take, take the lead here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, was that we could reframe what having a disability for people with and without disabilities. And that, um, and that it's important for the stigma of disability to uh, be put to bed permanently. And uh, I think that's the, the hope that we, general hope that we really have. I, I agree with that. And I think um, another a goal that we had was to um, inspire people in, in um, to continue to believe that making this country better is possible um, and to, uh, to show an example of young people coming together to make change across difference 
listening to each other, respecting each other, understanding each other, forming a community, and through that community, uh, developing the strength to organize and and demand um, a more just government, and which is exactly, of course, what what we're all engaged in uh, trying to make happen now. Um, but I believe that this is uh, um, a story that Americans are impoverished if they don't know and hold dear as a as a kind of central part of the story of who we are and how we came to be. And that if we know that story, um, that we will be able to kind of, um, you know, stand on the shoulders of the of the of the people who made it happen, um, and and continue to make improvements in in this country. How did you say earlier in our conversation? You said that it's, it's not really about people being independent, but being interdependent. Interdependent. Yeah, you know, we have this American thing of like everybody pulls themselves up by the, their bootstraps and they don't have to worry about anybody else. And I had a colleague tell me at the beginning of this project when I said I'm thinking about working on this story, like, well, you don't want to do that because nobody wants to look at people with disabilities and nobody wants to hear old people with disabilities talk about, you know, their romantic lives and whatever. And um, I mean, that I think has been our attitude. If somebody's different from us, we don't have to worry about them. And if we, as long as we're, you know, doing fine in our own life and, and worrying about our own problems, then that's just going to be fine. And I mean, if this time that we're currently in has taught us anything, I hope it's taught us that that's really not true, you know? Um, and, and so I, I do think it's that, that theme of community interdependence and really just kind of like, um, respecting and loving people, as Jim said earlier, that that uh, that we, we feel is really at the core of the value of the story. Well, the, the movie is called Crip Camp. It's on Netflix. And uh, before I get to the two closing questions, I just want to implore and encourage and invite and challenge to just watch the movie. Just go learn something and broaden yourself and get over some of your fears of how you look at people or what you're afraid you might see and what you might learn, because I think watching this movie will make you a better person. I feel like it's made me a better person. So Nicole and, and James, I really appreciate you making this movie. Yeah, I really do. Thank you. Hey, Terry, let me, let me just say that it is uh, actually a very joyous. Story. Yes. And it is full yes. of humor. And you don't expect that coming from a bunch of people with disabilities. There are some outrageously funny moments and some really wonderful um, connections that you make with people. I appreciate you being emphatic about watch this film, but I just have to say, you know, um, it's a good time. You laugh, you cry. You, yeah, you laugh, you cry. You'll eat a lot of popcorn. It's great. I did all three. And most, I laughed more than I cried. There you go. My, okay, my closing questions for each of you, I'll start with Nicole. Since this uh, show is called Making It, what does making it mean to you both personally and professionally? And also, can you share three tips for success that have driven your career? Your remarkable career. <laughs> um, I'm going to try. Um, so I think for me, making it means that I'm, I'm, I'm able to sustain myself in order to make things that I think make change, you know, that really shift the way people see the world and, um, and, and encourage them to, to see and learn and understand something that 
they otherwise wouldn't have heard. I, I try to I try to work on projects that are telling stories from perspectives that are not being heard enough. Um, and that in and then in learning them, it can hopefully um, you know shift behavior or shift culture. That's that's making it to me. Um, of course, you know it's a it's always a struggle to be working on passion projects and to to to, to sustain a life out of that. Um, so I've had to learn how to uh, take on other work on the side while homes are being developed and fundraised for, and to um, and to try to figure out how to make that work meaningful too, and um, and and to to embrace that aspect of it. Um, I think in terms of tips for success. Um, one is um, is listen and 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 be open minded and um, and never get to a point in a project where you believe you exactly know what it should be or you you it's crystallized in your mind. But um, but be open to exploring and figuring it out as you're working on it. In documentary, at least, that's very very true. I think um, you sort of let what you're learning from the footage that you shoot. Um, dictate what the film should be. Um, and that's a beautiful process. And I think my second tip would be that you should engage in that in, in creative process with uh, collaborators that you love and respect and get joy out of working with. Um, and you should avoid projects where you're not feeling that way. <laughs> and that that's almost as important as what you choose to make or, or, or the success of it is if you've had a rewarding collaborative experience and you've learned from your collaborators. Um, uh, you know, um, I'm going to borrow a piece of advice from um, President Obama, who uh, called us right before Sundance to congratulate us on the opening of the film and said, um, don't pay any attention to the chatter. Um, he said, it's going to be tempting, but you're not really going to know um, the success or value of the, of the project until 10 years from now, when some kid comes up to you and says, I saw that film and, you know, that made me decide to do something meaningful or whatever it would be. And I think that's really true, too, to to not judge your your success or the value of the work you're putting out in the world by people's immediate response, but to just have faith and play the long game, you know? And I feel like um, we really did that with this project. Um, we really took our time. We really um, let it evolve into, um, into something beautiful. And that's, uh, you know, it, that paid off in the end. Beautifully said. And Jim, um, for you, what is making it mean to you, both professionally and personally, and also three tips for success that have driven your career? I think making it um, perhaps one, there's a couple of ways you can gauge that. One of them is that if you find yourself within a community or a group of people in which you can do things that are important to you and excel at those things that are important to you. You know, whether you're uh, an Olympic swimmer or whether you're somebody who is learning watercolors for the first time, that that moment in which you've got something you kind of go, wow, I, 
that's not bad. Um, I, so I think that it is finding your place in the, your community and finding an opportunity to learn and be nurtured by that and to give something is really making it. Three tips for making it or success or... That have driven your career, especially because your career has been uh, eclectic and you've been very successful and you have worked very hard to make that happen. Well, first off, I think there was a certain self-imposed standard for my work that I felt like I had to achieve, that I felt like as somebody with a disability, that people were expecting me to be less competent than I was. And that I felt this incredible pressure to excel, not just meet, but excel. And it really, because A, it was my own survival, but also I felt like, you know, I'm the only one here with a disability. I, you know, I'm representing other people with disabilities. If I screw up, what is that going to do to the next person down the road? If I didn't care enough or was lazy, what is that going to say about people with disabilities? Which is a hell of a pressure to put on yourself, but uh, it made me really good. I mean, I'm kind of grateful for it. You know, it's, at times it's just like if you have an adversity, somehow it, it enables you at some at times to really be driven and that that's actually an advantage in, in your life. Um, one of those ways of excelling was caring about what I was doing and caring about the people I was that were hiring me to do work with them. And you know, I live in Northern California. We have Skywalker Ranch, just you know, not too far away from here, one of the, the top audio facilities in the world. Well, I don't have, you know, a, you know, at the company, we don't have like cows on the hill and uh, a vineyard that you walk through. Uh, but we have a reasonable, you know, espresso machine. And also that, um, that, you know, I don't, we care about this. We realize that we're, you know, that someone has trusted us to take their, their baby and, and do a great job. So no one can do that better than me unless I let them. Um, and I think the, what is, what would be a, a third, you know, a way to kind of say that you, you know, measure or how, how does one succeed? Take care of yourself. It's very, very hard when you're the only person in a field to not burn yourself out or push yourself to the extreme. But you, if you're an activist, you can't help other people if you can't help yourself first. And that often we look upon these people that I got to be this person that, you know, slept all night to make the posters and do everything. I didn't get any sleep all night to make the posters and the flyers and all of that. And you need to model self-care for the other people around you. And that's not a measure of your dedication to the cause that you could stay up all night. It just means that you drank a lot of coffee. Maybe you're 40 years younger than I am. But, but, but that, that the measure of someone's contribution isn't in the number of hours. It's in the quality of thought that goes into it. And you must lead by example and take care of yourself. Which, look, I've thrown myself in the hospital a couple of times. I did once, too. Uh, yes. 
yeah, so I'm, I'm speaking from experience here. Great answers from both of you. My final question to each of you is at this point of your life with everything that you know to be true, what would you tell your younger self if you could? Uh, well, certainly looking back on the film, I could tell myself, you know, Jim, you're not as bad looking as you think you are. <laughs> you're you a know? total stud, dude. <laughs> you can't believe sometimes where he's like, Jesus, dude. Whoa. And I'm thinking, well, I hadn't, I really, I'm 15, who knows, you know, so um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a very capricious answer to your question, uh, but, uh, you know, um, maybe not to worry so much. Nicole? Um, you know, recently there's sort of a line floating around amongst women on Twitter, which is if you're feeling people say like, have, have the confidence of just carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white dude. And, um, <laughs> I, I, that also sounds capricious, but honestly, if I, if I was talking to my younger self, that's almost exactly what I'd say. I think there were so many, uh, ways in which I, because I didn't see people like me in the industry doing the things that I wanted to be doing, I therefore decided that they weren't available to me to do or I internalize some kind of insecurity about whether or not I could do them. And, uh, and I think I would just um, try to, um, you know, erode all of that. And if I could, um, you know, and, and tell myself uh, that just because, uh, you know, I didn't see a lot of women directors or, or, or women, you know, auteurs, um, uh, women, you know, repeatedly getting lauded at film festivals and things like that, that that wasn't something that, that I, I could do. And, um, and I think I would have, um, carried myself differently and, and, um, and probably created differently actually, if I had been able to, um, to internalize that when I was younger. Great answers both. And thanks for a very enlightening and fun conversation. Again, the movie's called Crip Camp and Go see it. It's great. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll eat a lot of popcorn. You won't regret it. Jim and Nicole, thank you so much for, sh for sharing your stories, your life, your perspective, and your passion. Yeah. Thanks. Thank great you. to talk to you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Tune in again next week for another great episode of Making It with Terry Wallman.